Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, Candy. This is going to be coming out right before Christmas. Yes. So, well, first of all, a Merry Christmas to everyone, or Happy Holidays, depending on what you celebrate. I'm ready to talk about the holiday Let's season. Are I'm you? ready for today's oh. episode. Okay. Well, I was going to start by asking you, does your family have any holiday films that you watch? It doesn't have to be films. It could be TV shows, whatever, that you watch every year. Well, when I was little, it was always Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer mm-hmm. and The Year Without a Santa Claus. Oh, yes. And um, Prancer was also one that we watched pretty well all the time. Mm-hmm. For our family, a big one has been Elf. Oh, yeah. You've talked about that before. Yes. Yes. We have seen Elf so many times. I feel like I could probably recite that movie. Some of the other ones, Rudolph is another big one. Yes. Brian and I like to watch Mixed Nuts, which I talked about with our Nora Ephron episode. That's my favorite of her films. Yeah. It's good holiday movies. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason why I ask, and I know you know this, Ashley. I do indeed. Is because there is a certain movie around which there is a bit of a debate as to whether or not it is a Christmas movie. Would you like to tell them what it is? A controversy, if you will. Yes. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you're the one who suggested we do this episode because you had heard more about this debate than I had, Mm -hmm, to be quite mm -hmm. honest. It had not come across my radar. Yes. To to quote my cousin Lauren, there are people who say that Die Hard is a Christmas movie and there are people who are wrong. (laughs) Well, I had to look it up. And what I discovered was in 2021, The Atlantic conducted an actual investigation to find out how this debate started, right? According to their research, they think that the discussion began with a viral 2007 Slate post that was titled, Now I Have a Machine Gun, Ho, 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 ho. ho. (laughs) yes, which of course refers to one of the very famous Mm -hmm. quotes from the movie. But this author, Michael Agar, he created his argument for the fact that he felt Die Hard was a Christmas movie. And then a second blog post by The Guardian came out not too long after that, and they think that the combination of these two posts that were in 2007 that came out in close proximity to mm-hmm. each other is what caused the debate to first start. But they looked at Google Trends, and when they did, they discovered that the number of searches for Is Die Hard a Christmas Movie was actually pretty low until 2016. Really? And from 2016 on, the traffic for that phrase for that that search that question yes has increased every year in november and december nice so there you go there's the origin of the debate before we have this episode Mm -hmm. and we dig into die hard a little bit ashley i thought i would get both of us to go on record with our original votes okay and then at the end we'll come back and and we'll talk we'll see if we've changed our position at all all right so how would you vote i say yes okay do you we don't want to get into the debate right now yes so we'll just we'll just stop with a yes okay okay going into this research and this episode i would have been a hard no really interesting yes okay okay so let's go ahead and start talking about die hard before we talk about how it came to be and really you know the behind the scenes have you had a chance to rewatch? i did oh, okay. i watched it a couple nights ago okay. yes and as i was watching it i took my own notes about every time something christmasy came up <laughs> did you i did I, indeed. I was actually looking for that too <laughs> i did Yes. So anytime there was something Christmas, I wrote it down. Well, outside of the Christmas references. What are oh, wait, some... wait, wait. I got to give you my first one because my first note was Bruce slash John felt the way I did on the San Antonio plane. <laughs> you know, the first <laughs> shot where he's like gripping that armrest. So that was my first note. Okay, go ahead. Well, actually, I was going to say before yeah. we get into talking about yeah. the movie, I thought it would be fun for us just to share a few general impressions. Oh, okay. So so yes, let's, let's both kind of popcorn and, and okay. share some of our thoughts as we were doing a rewatch because I don't know about you but for me this was the first time I had seen the movie in gosh I don't know it may have been over 15 years I oh mean, it's of been course sooner I, than that for me yeah yeah of course I saw it 
when it first came out, mm-hmm. and I probably have seen it once since, but it had been a long time. Okay. Yeah. So one of my first impressions was, oh my gosh, how much have things changed since 1988? I was so taken aback by the landline phone. There was a sign advertising gas for 74 cents. I noticed cents. that too. I said I to Brian, was that thing just saying that gas was 74 cents? <laughs> they had a cassette tape. There was a car phone in the limo that was supposed to be like super high tech. Mm-hmm. And this is not technology, but Bruce Willis was smoking so yeah. much. And I thought, oh, that shows a, a change in the times that that was such a big prevalent thing. There was actually 10 smoked cigarettes because oh, I watched a couple videos and they they did they had did die hard by the numbers to prove if it was a Christmas movie or not. So I can talk more about those later, okay. but they counted and they said there was 10 by various different characters. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Another, did you have any other impressions that you wanted to share? Uh, let's see. I, well, like I said, I took the notes about what the movie was. So the stewardess says, Merry Christmas in the first few minutes. We've got the Christmas party, Christmas trees. She even says it's Christmas Eve. He brings a gift, which is the teddy. They play Christmas music and that's not even past the opening credits. Okay. That's so you all. were really attuned to the I was really the tuned into part. the Christmas okay. stuff. Well, I will talk more about the theme and why I think it's a Christmas movie. That's the Christmas decorations. Well, one other general thought I had was thinking about this as an action movie. I noticed immediately because, you know, it had been so long since I'd seen Bruce mm-hmm. Willis that young. Yeah. You know, in my and mind. That's, yes. <laughs> so I was immediately impressed when I saw, you know, he was in his, his t-shirt. Yeah. And I was like, oh, he had been working out. He was he, fit. He was very fit. On the flip side, I could not help noticing. I even made an, you know, I was typing my notes as well. And I was like, oh my goodness, there were different times when he was in the middle of an action sequence or he was trying to take a chair and bust a window. And I was like, he is so graceful, almost balletic yes. in some of his movements. Yes. And I was struck by that. Yes. Because that's not how I would normally think of an action star. Well, that's interesting that you bring that up. And one of the videos that I watched, and I'm going to reference these two videos a lot, so I'll go ahead and give the title. One of them was by a YouTube creator named Howard Ho, and it's How Die Hard Uses Beethoven for Hans and Why It's Amazing. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend that. I watched it twice. The oh. other video I'm going to talk about is Fandom Entertainment by the Numbers. Science Proves Die Hard is a Christmas movie. <laughs> so the one from Howard Ho, he pointed out that I'm, I'm going to get the bad guy name wrong, but the one with the long blonde hair, the last yeah, one. Yeah, I found him. Carl. Carl. Yeah. He was actually a very well-known ballerina. I know. From Russia. Yes. And he before he defected. The so they said that's why those fight scenes were so graceful and beautiful is because of them. So I wonder if Bruce got a few tips from I Carl. I don't know. I, I feel like watching Bruce Willis, because I did a little bit of a, you know, deep dive on Bruce as I was doing this. He was actually representing a Seagram's. I think it was wine coolers. Like that he was, he was their representative. And I watched one of the commercials from that time mm-hmm. where he came out singing and he's just, he's a graceful man. Nice. Like even as he was singing that song for this commercial, nice. I think it's a little bit of who he is. Did you or dive was. into how many people turned this down? I did. Okay, good. Yeah, good. We're going to get into that. So now that we've had a chance to kind of talk about a few of our impressions, let's go ahead and start from the very beginning. Of course, we think about it as this 1988 action movie that is beloved and, and super popular, but it actually goes all the way back to 19. 19- 68. Because it's a book. Yes. It was, well, the book was 1966, but the film was the 1968 version called The Detective. With Frank Sinatra, right? Yes. And they had to, I saw they had to offer him this part contractually and he turned it down. We're like, thanks, Frank. (laughs) But (laughs) it's like a sequel itself. Yes. And he's the one who instigated it because he really enjoyed his lead role was Mm -hmm. Detective Joe Leland in the film. And this book, by the way, was written by Roderick Thorpe. Okay. So Frank wanted the author to write the sequel because he wanted to star in that next movie as well. But it took the author something like 10 or 11 years to write the next book, which was called Nothing Lasts Forever. It was published in 1979, and it was very different. The Mm. first book, The Detective, was this hard-edged detective story, and the new version, the the sequel, was more of an action book, and it Mm -hmm. did take place in a building and had many of the elements that we see today in the movie, Okay, but with some key differences. We'll come back to that. Okay. But as we've said, 10 or 11 years for the book to even come out, and then several more years before Hollywood decides to turn this into a movie. 
what they did was they hired a man named Jeb Stewart to write the script. And he, along with several other people involved with the project, including director John McTiernan, gave interviews for that same Netflix series I've mentioned before, The Movies That Made Us. Oh, I should have watched that. And so I was able to hear firsthand from a lot of people involved in the story some of these behind the scenes little anecdotes and so I got to hear Jeb talk about this and what a challenge it was to try to turn this book Mm -hmm. into a script but I gotta say they did a brilliant job this is a really tightly written well done they plant things in the beginning that pay off in Mm -hmm. the end it's just such a good script yes well it took two of them to do that okay yeah Jeb's the one who first started it out what happened was he was looking at this book where the main character is in his early 60s. Oh, which would be for Frank. uh Uh-huh. Okay. And there is a scene, a very key scene in the book where he's holding his daughter's hand as she is dangling from the (gasps) building and she drops and his daughter is killed. So you can tell there are some huge differences. No. Right? And so Jeb has to try to turn this into an action movie. And he said it was a struggle. He was Mm. having a hard time thinking, how am I going to make this work? And so he told the most interesting story story I thought he said one night quote I got into a huge knockdown drag out fight with my wife over probably something completely incidental she was completely right I was completely (laughs) wrong and instead of apologizing on the spot I got back into the car angry got on the freeway and took off from Pasadena back down to Burbank at about seven o'clock in the evening so he shares that as he's speeding down the road all these cars are weaving out of the different lanes around him and he is totally caught up in this fight that he had just had And he's trying to think, you know, how's he going to handle this? You know, is he going to apologize to his wife? He knows he should. And suddenly in front of him, as he's speeding along, this car in front of him veers off to the right. And he realizes that directly in front of him is a huge refrigerator box. And he said, quote, I couldn't go right or left. And I went right through it at about 65 (sighs) miles an hour. He went on to say that he was really lucky it was empty because he thought that was the end of him. Yeah. To continue his quote, I pulled over to the side of the freeway and my heart was pounding and I thought, I know what nothing lasts forever is. Mm. It's not about a 60-year-old man who drops his daughter off of a building. It's about a 30-year-old who should have said he's sorry to his wife and something really bad happens. Yes, yes. Isn't that the best story? Oh, I've got goosebumps. I know. Yes. I loved it. Yes. So I'm giving a huge shout out to Mr. Jeb Stewart because I think he he created the essence of Die Hard when he had that realization. When in Howard Ho's video, he talks about how people say that it's a film with how can a film be a Christmas movie if it's got terrorists and guns and cussing and all of this stuff? And he's like, that's not what it's about. That's what happens. What it's about is a man who learns to get over his own BS and accept his wife and support his wife. And that's what the film, that's the theme of the film. film. That's the heart of the film. Yeah. Well, it was, just to finish this out, it was really cute because in this interview, somebody asked, did you immediately go home and apologize to your wife? And he's like, actually, no, I went went and wrote like the first 30 pages of the script (laughs) because he was so excited. But regardless, that is how the basic story of Die Hard came to life. And I love that story. But now let's talk about the movie so it was rated r due to language and violence in case you were not aware yeah for sure and here is a brief summary from imdb new york pd cop john mcclain goes on a christmas vacation to visit his wife holly in los angeles where she works for the nakatomi corporation while they are at the nakatomi headquarters for a christmas party a group of robbers led by hans gruber takes control of the building and holds everyone hostage with the exception of john Mm -hmm. while they plan to perform a lucrative heist unable to escape and with no immediate police response john is forced to take matters into his own hands okay yes so even with the setup this is such a cool setup and first of all we don't know they're robbers we think they're terrorists which is what they want everyone to think yes and we find out later so him getting sick on the plane like Mm -hmm. seasick or or, Mm -hmm. or motion sick the guy next to him says when you get there take off your shoes make fists with your toes right so he's taking off his shoes he's doing the thing that's why he doesn't have his shoes on he has this argument with his wife which is why he's in the room and does 
an exit with her right. when they take over. So that's all of the setup to get him in the place that he needs to be was pre-thought out. It was so smart because mm-hmm. we go all the way back to the opening sequence of why he's going to be barefoot. And it's so cool to have your main hero character have this vulnerability where he has on just a tank top, dress pants, and he is barefoot. And I asked Brian, I said, okay, would you take the time to put your shoes on? Mm-hmm. And this, when he first runs out and finds out everything's going on. And he said, in that instance, no, but right. I would have taken them with me. I would have grabbed them like as a, as a regular person, what, what would you have done? He said, I would have taken them with me. And when he was up on the roof of the, the higher levels of the floor, he said, I would have put them on then. Mm-hmm. But anyway, for the purposes of our, right. They our needed film, him because he's again, an every man. He's an, he is every man yeah. and the vulnerability. Yes. And we're going to make him as what's the word as, um, flawed and as open to Mm -hmm. to all of the dangers as possible yep and he even says after they have the argument i even said when i was watching it it was going so well i was like john why'd you pick a fight with her about the last (laughs) name stuff but even the last name the fact that she uses Gennaro protects her later because they find out he's mclean and they think that she's Gennaro. and even the fact that she set the family photo down there's Mm -hmm. family photos of or there's photos of her with the kids but the one eight by ten she's mad at him so she sets it down when hans goes in there later and it's laid down he doesn't pick it back up until he puts the pieces together right so much good pre-planning yeah and also cues right the fact that they make a point in a movie when you're watching every little thing is important everything is intentional so that helps the audience also that's why i like the script notice those things yes well, in the beginning, when they decided they were going to make this movie, obviously they needed a producer, Joel Silver, who's who they brought on board for that, and he is actually the one given credit for the title Die Hard, which I is much better than from. Nothing Lasts Forever. Right. And he also, of course, then set about getting a director. Joel Silver and John McTiernan had worked together on Predator just before this, so it was very natural for him to recruit John McTiernan for this project. But unfortunately, John was very reluctant. This goes back to what you brought up a minute ago. He kept turning the offer down. And on the movies that made us, he said his biggest reason for doing so was because he didn't want to do a movie about terrorists. Mm -hmm. He said people don't enjoy movies about terrorism Mm -hmm. or terrorists. It's not fun. Mm -hmm. His quote was, nobody likes terrorists. Everybody likes robbers. They're fun. You can enjoy it. Yeah, a heist film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he even uh, made a comparison to like the Ocean Eleven 11 movies. Yes. Later, talking about this reflectively. But when he agreed to take the job... Oh, no, no. Ocean's Eleven was a film with Frank Sinatra. Oh. Mm -hmm. So he would have been talking about it. He would have been talking... It was a remake. Got it. Well, when he agreed to take the job, he did so with the caveat that changes would have to be made. This is what leads to the replacement of the original scriptwriter, Jeb Stewart, by a new writer, Stephen Tsuza. Okay. Now, Jeb had done a huge chunk of this work. A lot of legwork. Yes. He had come up with a script mm-hmm. that, you know, had taken the, pr- the new premise that he had created, this 30-year-old who's got this issue with his wife. Yes. He had, he'd put all this in place. But what they realized was they wanted to make this different from the typical action movie of the day. So John McTiernan and the director of photography, Jean DeBont, they shared, both of them, on the movies that made us, that in order to make their movie different from a typical action film they wanted to get away from what was very common in that day which John McTiernan called quote a toxic masculinity tough guy image Mm -hmm. John wanted to keep all the action Mm -hmm. he loved the action that was Mm -hmm. in the script but he wanted more humor and so they intentionally looked for places to add silly humor they wanted to embed it throughout and they wanted to show people being very human not just John McClane because you're right we're going to come back to that vulnerability aspect that we've already mentioned but even those silly little bits for example the terrorist who suddenly notices the candy in the candy counter and has to go in after it or there's a SWAT guy who got pricked by the thorns when running through the rose bushes Argyle a lot of his little bits Mm -hmm. so that he wanted this humor throughout Jeb Stewart again he had created this action script but he wasn't sure how to add the humor that John McTiernan wanted so this is why they replaced him with Stephen D'Souza and he ends up having to basically do a rewrite a punch up or a rewrite well they kept 
referring to it as a rewrite. Okay, okay. Yeah. And Stephen, by the way, had written Commando and 48 Hours. He had a good... Oh, so he had that quippy humor. Yes, he had a really strong reputation for being able to do this. But he ends up in the same situation that we have talked about before, like we had with Jaws, where they went into filming with only 35 pages of his rewrite completed. So very soon, he's in a situation where he is just staying pages ahead (sighs) of their filming. Oh my gosh. Which will, in some ways, pay off for them. I'll come back to that in just a bit because I'll give you a few examples of how he was able to do some pretty cool things because of that. But first, let's talk about the casting. Okay. <laughs> You're excited. I am. So, as you said, the production team was contractually obligated to offer the lead role to Frank Sinatra like, because hey, of this situation. Frank, I know he's 30. <laughs> Do you want to play him? No. Okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> yeah. He was in his early 70s. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yes, he turned it down. I hope he was graceful about it. Like, <laughs> thanks for asking, but yeah. no appreciate thanks. it. I, I, thanks I so much. Yeah. Yes. I saw something different in a written article article but on the movies that made us they said that their first choice for John McClane was Clint Eastwood Mm. and he obviously turned it down in fact he returned it the script that is with a note written across it that said I don't get the humor I don't think he would I don't think he's that kind of guy (laughs) no and then they said they went to all of the famous action hero stars of the day yep Schwarzenegger yeah Schwartz Richard Gere Burt Reynolds even James Caan all of them said no writer Stephen D'Souza said he suspected that it was because for these typical action stars of the day the character was to his word wimpy Mm. and he literally said they probably read the script and thought to themselves quote all the hero of this movie does is hide and try to get help and so the the movies of the day were like predator rambo right where it was all about this crazy over-the-top action and so this was different the script was different in the way that John McClane's character approached this situation of terrorists taking over this building. And that's actually, uh, I'll just pop these in, in Fandom Entertainment's notes about it. They said that the three things that a Christmas movie has is goodwill, generosity, and altruism. And the goodwill was he helped the police. That's what John <laughs> McClane was doing. He was trying to help the police. And in generosity, he brought his kids gifts. And in altruism, he was on that roof trying to get all the civilians off and he was willing to sacrifice himself. You are making trying to I feel like you're going into this maybe not with an open mind I don't know no I I'm representing John McClane and Die Hard please sit at this table we are the defense (laughs) well it's so funny they went to Bruce Willis but he was only known for moonlighting at that time he was only known for moonlighting and did you watch moonlighting when it first came out I did well I don't know if I saw it when it first came out right but you've seen it it. yes Mm -hmm. I had to it had been so long I rewatched the pilot did you love it it was fun to see him that young and to see the banter the banter and their chemistry with Mm -hmm. each other Mm -hmm. although I think it ended up turning very sour yes I believe it did turn very ugly but in terms of that pilot you could feel the chemistry well it was interesting because his agent was one of the people interviewed on the movies that made us and he spoke about the fact that Bruce was great in terms of his TV persona he said that when they went into moonlighting Sybil Shepard was supposed to be the star right and she thought she was the star but by the second season he was the star he was the star because everybody loved him and especially women loved him Mm -hmm. he had a very strong female fan base and the thing about him was they loved him because he was a bit of a charming smart aleck you know it reminds me of chris pratt and how chris pratt has made the leap from parks and rec as a tv star Mm -hmm. and lovable kind of a lovable idiot to the leap of guardians of the galaxy where he became this action hero kind of person yes nobody thought that chris pratt was the right person for that role either right and you're leading into this very well because people had so many doubts about him because one of the the issues was he had not transitioned to film well he had already had two movies under his belt the first was blind date with kim basinger oh i remember that it one. did not do mm-hmm. well and then he went into a second movie which was called sunset which the 
the creator of Moonlighting commented that nobody went to see it. Okay. So it was a flop. Okay. And people had a lot of doubts. They were thinking this might be the end of his movie career. But his agent was super smart. And he had heard that all these people were turning John McClane, that role down. And so he used it to his advantage. And he went into the negotiations and he managed to get an unheard of amount for Bruce Willis at that time, which was $5 million. <gasps> and and it, he, was it banked on his Moonlighting uh, popularity? No, it was basically, I know, Nobody else I do know it. you're desperate. And if you don't give him this, he's just going to go over to Japan and make commercials. Like, wow. And they gave the money to Bruce. But this added a lot of pressure because there was criticism. Like people basically laughed at them for paying this much to Bruce Willis when people had doubts about his ability to carry this off mm -hmm. to begin with. And I think it also put pressure on Bruce Willis, mm -hmm. knowing that he was coming in with, you know, all of this sitting on his shoulders. And they were right to be concerned because John McTiernan, the director, said as soon as they started filming, they noticed a problem with Bruce. On TV, the thing that everybody loved about him, that little smart aleck persona, great. That made him lovable. On film, on the big screen, it did not translate. They said it made him unlikable oh. and he seemed like a jerk. What ended up making the difference for them, that was another reason why they were determined to add in the silly humor and kind of that little adventure antics type mm -hmm. feel to it because mm -hmm. they felt like that's what made him more normal, more relatable, more likable on the big screen. I love it. Yeah. Well, we're going to come back, obviously, a lot more to Bruce here in a minute. But just to finish out talking about the casting, according to John McTiernan, Bruce advocated for Bonnie Bedelia to play the role of Holly. He, John, commented that when they were looking for a female to play that part, they pulled out their standard list of, this is how he phrased it, all the hot actresses in Hollywood yeah. at that time. But Bruce was the one who said, quote, no, this woman is a really good actress. And so he helped to get her cast. And then Bonnie spoke on the uh, interview saying, Saying that she really liked Holly, that she was not a typical damsel in distress. She wasn't. No, she was an accomplished, smart woman. Yes. And so she liked that they gave her that that credit. You know, she wasn't just kind of this little superficial character. I liked it. I liked it too. I really liked. I really liked Holly. Mm -hmm. Also a Christmas name. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I did notice that. Reggie Vell Johnson was the one who played policeman Sergeant Al Powell, and he's the one that John forms that really strong yes. bond with. Yes. It was was so sweet because in his interview he said he was ready to give up he had been going to audition after audition no luck he said his mom was the only one who continued to support his Aww, dream moms. yes and moms she kept, are the best she kept encouraging him but he was about to hang it up but when he went to the diehard auditions he remembered telling his mother quote mom this is my last chance at doing a film at the auditions he remembered wesley snipes was one of the people that he was up against and that's course, some competition that right is there right i don't know if he actually got to witness it or if he just heard it but he said after listening to wesley do his audition he told him himself, I'm going to do it differently. Yeah. And he recalled that his approach was to talk directly into the camera and just to kind of be really real. His quote as he was doing the interview was that he said, you give me this job, I'll be the best Al Powell you've ever seen. <laughs> and then he said a few weeks later, he got the call Aww. and he was so excited. He was so sweet in that movie. He really was. And even his arc as a character mm -hmm. is set up and then it pays off at the end. Absolutely. It's like a story of friendship and love. Yeah. Yes, yes, I agree. Well, Alan Rickman. His I, first job, right? He didn't even become an actor until he was in his 40s. Well, he was an acclaimed stage actor. Stage, yeah. Yes, yeah. but this was his very first movie. You are right. So, But the production team wanted him because of his great reputation on the stage. Uh -huh. And also, he had that aura they wanted. He, yeah. You know, he came across as this really well-educated European man. But he was very hesitant to do an action movie. And he admitted that at the time they approached him with this, he was afraid of the scenes that required Required his character Hans Gruber to shoot a gun. Oh, and he said, "quote If you look carefully, you'll see me blinking." <laughs> and then he added, "It's shocking how thrilling it is to shoot a machine gun." <laughs> that I have discovered. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> and the casting director joked that she had to help him learn how to hold the gun because he did not he just, do it realistically. No, he's just on yeah. stage. Yes, you've already brought up 
Alexander Gudinov. He was the Russian was ballet okay. dancer and actor. He was already an actor in Russia, too, by the mm. way, who defected to America in 1979. He played Carl, the sidekick to Hans Gruber, whose brother, Tony, was the first robber slash terrorist that ends up getting killed by John mm-hmm. McClane. The first, the first victim. Yeah. So also, I don't know if you guys have seen The Money Pit, but that's what I recognize him from. Oh, is okay. He is Shelly Long's current boyfriend or, or wants to date her or something. He works in the orchestra and they actually use the song Ode to Joy in the Money Pit as well and he conducts Ode to Joy so I thought it was fun to hear that song but there were some other people I don't have their real names but I have what Mm -hmm. I know them from you'll notice that there are two Goonies actors in this did you notice one of the SWAT he's one of the Fratelli brothers Oh, and the news anchor I'm pretty sure the news anchor the female news anchor was the Goonies mom nice was Sean Astin's mom they had uh, one Bill and Ted actor Genghis Khan is the one that wanted the candy (laughs) one Burbs actor one of my favorite films Art the one that was the electrician or something that cut off the power yes. that was him and Clarence Gilliard was also on Chuck Norris nice so there was a yeah, lot they had of cameos a lot, a lot of really strong actors and of course in this Reginald Bell Johnson went on to be in Family Matters yes he did yes he did in fact that was something that that they give this movie credit for because revitalizing his career right he would have he mm-hmm. would have probably dropped out and we wouldn't have had him what a shame yeah well that seems like a good place to pause for a minute and take a break before we come back to start talking about the filming. Yes. Where do you sip your scandal water? Do you catch up on the tea while folding your laundry? Sitting at your work desk? Working out at the gym? With the new year, we are also ringing in a few fun changes at Scandal Water, and one of them is including more listeners' voices in our episodes. So send in your shout-out, telling us your first name, your hometown, and where you are or what you're doing when you listen to Scandal Water, and you just might hear a voice you recognize starting one of our upcoming 2024 episodes. Email your audio clip to scandalwaterpodcast at gmail.com. The voice memo app on your phone will work just fine. Cheers! And we are back. Well, to talk about the setting. To represent the Nakatomi Tower, they decided to go with convenience. Mm. They happened to have a building across the road, the Fox Plaza, which was on the Fox lot, the 20th century Fox lot, and part of the Fox Corporation. So that was very handy. That is handy. And what made it even better was this building, the Fox Plaza, was so new that parts of it were still under construction. So while parts of it, like the vast majority of it, was actually still in use, it was being used by lawyers and and corporate offices that were associated with Fox, the diehard production team was allowed to use the unfinished floors. That's perfect for the film. Mm -hmm. Because of the time crunch and and the setting that they needed for their movie, they decided to use it. And writer Stephen D'Souza, I'm going to start calling him Stephen. Okay. He explained that he actually walked through the floors under construction and he would just look for things that they could use. Yes, use oh, in their it. script. So, for example, he's walking by and he'd be like, oh, furniture dolly, got it. Oh, here's a steep stairwell. Oh, and there are chains oh, here that are hanging nearby. Yeah. And he would just start thinking about how could he we embed for he this was. in the script. Yes. And he said that he actually thought this was very cool because it made their movie more fresh and Mm -hmm. it gave them different things to work with because he's like, how many fistfights do we need in an action movie? How exciting is that? Mm -hmm. The fact that he used the building, that's something that he credits for making this a little, you know, a a little better. Mm -hmm. And of course, they also had a great stunt coordinator who helped them to realize a lot of the things that they wanted to do with this location. Okay. Now, when they started filming, coming back to this idea we introduced before, Things were a little rocky at first with Bruce Willis in the leading role. Again, he's probably feeling some pressure and they're feeling pressure because they need him to translate well from TV to big screen. And one source even talked about there being maybe a little bit of a tense feeling between the director and Bruce Willis. It might have seemed like Bruce didn't want to take direction, but there was a funny story where John McTiernan shared that he felt like in, in one specific instance that Bruce was kind of pushing back on him and he realized that actually Bruce was self-conscious because he thought that the shot that they were planning was going to show his hair was thinning mm. and John McTiernan when he figured it out said he laughed and he told him basically don't worry about it our job is to make you look good yes. your hair is going to be your fine your hair will be yeah. fine yes well as they went on and started getting into it everybody started getting more comfortable Bruce stepped up to do a lot of his own stunts in a Fox News article that was published just this past July, he 
was quoted as saying, if you saw the film, they really kind of beat me up in this thing. It's a very physical part. I did a lot of my own stunts in it. I think that was a quote that he had said in the past Mm -hmm. that they pulled out. Yes. And back in 2007, he had told The Guardian that because he did do some of these dangerous scenes, he actually suffers from partial hearing loss. Oh. He said, quote, and he kind of joked about it, due to an accident on the first Die Hard, I suffer two-thirds partial hearing loss in my left ear and have a tendency to say, what? (laughs) And it was his daughter who later explained in an interview she gave how it actually came to happen. She said that her dad had shot a gun a little too close to his ear during a scene for Die Hard, and that's what led to that partial hearing loss. But one of the very first scenes he shot for the film was the dangerous stunt you guys remember from the end where he jumps off the the exploding building. Yes, with the fire hose around his waist. They had planned to have a stuntman do the entire sequence, and he said he would do the leap part of it. Now, they they had somebody else finish it out. But he did the leap himself so that they could show those close-ups and his reactions, and it would make it it would make it stronger. Now, there is a fella named Nick DeSemelin who wrote a book called The Last Action Heroes, The Triumphs, Flops, and Feuds of Hollywood's Kings of Carnage. Yeah. And he had a little excerpt, a little section that he wrote about this experience. I liked it. It's not very long. So actually, if you don't mind, I'll ask sure. you to read it. Yeah, this also reminds me, I wonder if this is going to play into it. There was one moment where he's gone through the glass and he's laying there and the fire hose starts falling. Brian said that by the look on Bruce's face he said it looked like Bruce was actually reacting to like I'm about to be pulled off of this thing and he said that it was such a real expression of when that thing finally cut loose and he's like looking almost looks like he's looking off camera like whoa that was too close for me Actually, I don't remember the name of the film, but that was a little homage to an older movie where oh. there was a sequence very similar to that. And so they they put that in there, that idea of him, now he's going to get pulled out. The, uh-huh. yeah, that was By thanks to this hose. older movie. Interesting. All right, here's what it says. Arriving directly from the set of Moonlighting, he was whisked to the top of a five-story parking garage. As he waited, rubbing his hands together and wearing only a pair of black trousers. I thought they were brown, but maybe they were black. A white fire hose was looped around his bare midriff, a submachine gun hung via a strap from his neck, and a viscous gel slathered over his exposed skin. When Willis asked what the gel was for, but it's for fire, he was told it would prevent him from catching on fire. Mm-hmm. He quickly learned why. For his first shot, he jumped from a ledge onto an airbag below. As he did, large plastic bags of gasoline were detonated, unleashing a fireball that blew Willis, he claimed, right to the edge of the bag. When I landed, everyone came running over to me and I thought they were going to say, great job, attaboy, Willis later recalled. And what they were doing is seeing if I'm alive because I almost missed the bag. Can you imagine? That's your first day of work. Yes. And to think about going from moonlighting to jumping off a building. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I bet he was like, this is awesome, once he got used to it, though. Wow. Well, as we've said, different people in the interviews commented that Bruce did get more comfortable. He started joking around Mm -hmm. a lot more and really... Letting his real personality come through. And one of them said they wondered, this is a little fun side note, one of them said they wondered if it had anything to do with the fact that he and Demi Moore got married three weeks into the filming. Oh, Yeah, I had no idea that the timing worked out that way. They had only been in a relationship for four months when they got married. Really? Yes, at the Golden Nugget Hotel in Las Vegas in 19... 87. In her memoir, Inside Out, apparently Demi revealed that it was a spur-of-the-moment thing. They had not pre-planned that. In fact, she said, quote, we were moving to the gambling tables when Bruce said, I think we should get married. We'd been joking about it on the flight there, but suddenly it didn't seem like he was kidding. Mm. Yes, they got married during this. And I thought that was just a little fun side note. But to go back to what we were saying, that he did joke around a lot more and they started having a little bit more fun with it. And he even, Bruce, was quoted as saying in a 2000 interview with Ryan Seacrest that he was just joking around, goofing around with the crew members when that famous yippee Kaye line came about. He said, quote, it was a throwaway. I was just trying to crack up the crew and I never thought it was going to be allowed to stay in the film. It definitely was. Yes. <laughs> 
podcast. So speaking of stunts, one happy accident, which I'm sure Bruce was really happy did not involve him, occurred though during a really suspenseful part of the movie where John McClane is supposed to climb down in this elevator shaft suspended yes. by the strap of a machine gun. Yes. Remember that part? Yes, I do. Oh, it got me. Yeah. Well, the way it was originally planned, the stunt coordinator was the one telling about this and he explained that they had built a 40-foot shaft and supposedly John was just supposed to be successful. He was just supposed to climb down and, and there you go. So all the stuntman filling in for Bruce Willis was supposed to do was basically climb down and then move from one opening across to another opening. But when he was doing the stunt, the man's hands slipped and he actually fell all 40 feet, landing on the mat. He was fine. No big deal. But the production team was like, we can use this. And so what they did was they had him, they showed him falling and then they cut to a shot where you're looking directly at Bruce as his hands are holding onto that one edge and they make it look like he catches himself. Oh. And it added this suspense. Oh, it did. And that whole thing, it was just an accident. That's great. I know, so smart. Well, as we said earlier, Stephen, scriptwriter Stephen, was basically staying just a few days ahead of filming and I said that it, it really paid off. And what a tight script, even though he was on such a... That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Well, yes, he shared how he actually had a glitch because of that. What? They decided they were going to bring that ambulance out at the end and then they realized that earlier when they show that truck there's no ambulance shown inside it and they were like "Ah, let it go (laughs) who cares who cares it's like steven and the t-rex no one's gonna care no one's gonna care yeah she just walked through that fence it's fine it's just a movie guys it's it's fine they go to all this trouble and then like we don't care (laughs) yeah nobody's gonna notice and we hadn't right we hadn't so but here's an example of how this paid off he said one of the things that the production team really hoped could happen would be a meeting between the hero and the villain. Yes. But yes. They, but they couldn't think of a way to do it without one mm-hmm. of them just killing the other mm-hmm. one. Like it mm-hmm. didn't seem like they could find a realistic way to do this. Mm-hmm. So one day during a break, the actors and crew were kind of standing around chatting and somebody somehow just asked Alan Rickman, you know, a lot of Americans do British accents. You know, do, do you have an American accent? And he responded, that he didn't know if he could do an American accent per se. And I'm going to do a terrible impression here. <laughs> he said, but I can do a California one. And he, and, he, and he tried to do his California accent. And everybody laughed. But Stephen said it was That's like a light bulb went off in his head. He said he thought, that's it. John McClane only knows Hans as this German, German accented man on a radio. This is how I can have them believably meet and interact. Yes. Plus, then they added that whole layer of suspense because it looks like John McClane is being fooled. I said to Brian, does he know? Does he know? And he's like, yeah, of course he knows. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I was like, that's brilliant. I yeah, love it was. that. And, it, and you could just feel the like fireball of oh. tension between these two guys. Yeah. Yes, it was was so good. One of the things they brought out was, of course, Die Hard is known for the, not just the action sequences that occurred between people, but the explosions and and these huge action scenes that, that involved kind of outside elements. These caused, first of all, some problems with occupants in the building. They oh, had no. a lot of complaints. They're like, es- quit blowing stuff up. Well, yes. I mean, especially the, there was one group of lawyers who got so angry that during the day while they were trying to work, you had gunshots and crashes <laughs> and explosions. They were like, com- get off our lawn. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yes. They complained so much that they started trying to hold all of those scenes until after 5 p.m. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they might even like fake stuff and put in the sound effects later because they had people angry in the building. Then they started doing it after 5 p.m. And the neighbors started complaining because they said all the bright lights and the loud noises were keeping them up at night. So then they're like, get off our lawn. Well, and before I finish that thought, cute little side note, if you want to think about how involved this movie was, a fun fact is that after his presidency, Ronald Reagan took an office in Fox Plaza, this building that is being portrayed as the Nakatomi Tower in the film. And they said that as his advanced team was preparing his office, the FBI was called in due to all the discarded shell casings oh, that they found funny. throughout the building because, because of Die, Die Hard. Hard. That is funny. Yes. yes. Okay. But to 
finish the thought, because of all of these complaints, the production team, when they wanted to do their very huge explosion scene with the helicopters and the building blowing up, they had planned, they wanted something like three weeks. It was going to be complicated. Did they they wanted get one to, night? They got two hours oh, on a Sunday. No. Two hours on a Sunday because of all the complaints. Yeah. So John McTiernan was like, oh my gosh, you know, like, how are we going to do this? So he said they worked and worked and they Lots finally, they planned it out to where they thought in two hours they could do their entire sequence twice. So one time in an hour, you know, and then the second time. And then when they started filming it and all the gunshots and explosions were going off, the police came in and shut them down <gasps> and said this is too dangerous so they really ended up capturing all the footage that in they needed hour? oh no in less than an hour they got shut down before their first hour was up wow yeah so they got most of their footage in this tiny chunk of time which i thought was super fun but they did need to do that scene where one of the helicopters gets blown up yeah. and again this is pre widespread cgi like the technical cgi yeah. that we know but they did have some technology you know they some of that so they hired a visual effects company called boss films and they used a model of the nakatomi tower and miniature choppers to create that little scene for the last filming note regarding the scene where hans falls to his death have you heard christmas until hans gruber falls from the (laughs) how do you say the word nakatomi tower Tower. Well, have you heard the story of what happened with him? No, what? Okay. It's not a big story, but it's a cute story. Well, they knew it was a very important scene, and they wanted to make sure that they had a really nice Mm close-up of of Alan's reactions as As Hans Gruber as he's falling. So he did offer to do the stunt himself so that they could get some great shots, and I think he was a little nervous about it, but they set up a blue screen kind of below him, and he, Alan Rickman himself, was dangling over this 40-foot drop down to an airbag. Yeah. Well, the stunt group also had a rope suspending him so you know yeah, obviously safety, safety yeah, yeah, yes yeah. and then that helped to to drop him right they were going to make sure they dropped him at the right time so they set it up and they had it very carefully coordinated we're going to do this release when we get to you know three two one release mm-hmm. and then they purposefully dropped him on the wrong number, him on oh, the wrong yes. number yes, because yes, yes. they wanted to get a very authentic terrified reaction out <laughs> of this it. poor man <laughs> yes it. and so so he he would tell the story himself and he would joke about it. He said he's pretty sure that's why they made the very last scene that he ever shot for the uh-huh. film because they did that to him. Yeah. But yeah, so that's how they got such a great... He does look genuinely terrified. He does. He does. Well, when it came time to release the film, they still didn't have a lot of faith in Bruce Willis's ability to bring people in to see the movie. Right. And it got worse when this happened. Oh, no. The studio focus group that they had a poster that they put out and it had Bruce Willis in this huge large shot and this small you know image of the building kind of behind him and it received the lowest score of any poster the studio had ever tested dang there was even talk that in some movie theaters where they were playing the movie trailer people would boo (gasps) when Bruce Willis appeared on screen no yes I saw this in a written article and they mentioned it in this interview they actually revamped the posters and in some cases cases they removed him altogether in other cases the building was now huge yes. and he was like this tiny little image but that when, looks too king kongish like he's on the side of a building like a little guy oh all of i mean i got to see it and all mm-hmm. of a sudden the building is the whole focus of this poster it was crazy but when the movie was released on july 15th 1988 it brought in seven million its first weekend and as word of mouth spread and even more money started rolling in they put bruce back on the poster mm-hmm. in a much Bet more they prominent did. position Position, and Die Hard went on to become the top grossing action film of 1988 and it eventually made over 140 million at the box office while also obviously turning Bruce Willis into a major Bonafide. action star yeah. and paving the way for several more Die Hard sequels. This movie also did something that was very unusual for action films of the day. It received critical acclaim and was nominated for four Academy Awards. It should have been. It went on as we've obviously alluded. It affected hugely the careers of several cast members and crew members. Mm-hmm. Reggie, as we've said, mm-hmm. was able to go on and get mm-hmm. cast in Family his Matters. His mom, I'm sure, was so proud. Well, he bought his mom a house and a car. Aww. 
And he commented that he was very happy she was able to see him succeed before she passed away. What a good son. Yeah. Well, not only did it turn Bruce Willis into an action star, but this movie has been credited for redefining the idea of an action hero altogether. It is what we said at the top. Instead of this toxic masculine, Mm -hmm. you know, over the top action hero, people loved that this hero was a regular, relatable person, somebody who struggled, somebody who sat in the front of the limousine beside Argyle, somebody who was not afraid to show vulnerability. That same author that we mentioned before uh, from the book, The Last Action Heroes, he said Bruce Willis brought something to the film that action stars at that time rarely showed, a sensitive side. Yes. They gave an example that I loved. They said that Bruce was kind of conscious of this idea, the fact that people like Sylvester Stallone's Rambo character did not really connect with the average viewer. And so Bruce Willis would spend time thinking about certain scenes that were pivotal and how he was going to make his character more relatable. Mm -hmm. So one of the scenes was when he was supposed to relay a message to Holly while picking glass out of his feet. And they said that to get to that emotional piece of himself that Bruce Willis said in an interview at some point that he imagined what he would tell his new wife Demi Moore if he thought he might never see her again. And they said they shot that scene two different ways so that the director could have options. And in the end, they took the scene where Bruce Willis cried as the one they Mm -hmm. used. Mm -hmm. And then Bruce was later said to have commented that it was his favorite scene in the movie. It is. It's it's the heart of it. It's where he acknowledges his part in the problem Mm -hmm. and says, here's what I should have done. And here's what I want to do and tell her this. And now being the good best friend, the new best friend is like, you're going to tell her yourself. Yeah. It was such a good scene. It was. It really was. Well, in Variety Magazine, they shared some insights from Jeb Stewart, our first script writer, and he seemed to agree with that same idea. He mentioned the scene where Carl is really in a rage and he's throwing things around because he hadn't been able to kill John McClane. And while everybody else is acting terrified, Holly smiles and says, He's still alive. Yes. And when somebody says, how do you know? She says, only John can drive somebody that crazy. Yes, yes. And Jeb commented that John McClane is so likable because he is a flawed, angry hero, but he's a man learning a life lesson in the hardest way possible. Mm -hmm. And Jeb says, quote, and he does. He manages to become a better person through the movie, but not an entirely different person. At the end of the movie, he's still who he is, but he's better. But he's better. Yes. I would compare that to George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) So could we perhaps compare it to some characters who were not in Christmas movies who also grew? Nope, don't think so. So weird of them to release a Christmas movie in July. (laughs) Well, in addition to redefining an action hero, Die Hard is also credited for helping to redefine what an action movie should be. We've already been saying this the whole time through, but it's not just a film about stunts and fights. What this movie brought to light was that an action movie nowadays, we're expecting to have things like important themes, Mm -hmm. such as loyalty, friendship. They should have emotion attached to them. Right. Yes. In fact, Bond Bedelia she laughed (laughs) in her interview she said that you know that big moment at the end where you're expecting John and Holly to walk out and it feels like it should be their big moment Mm -hmm. to show their love she laughed because she said instead you have John McClane and Reggie making this huge eye contact and then they go in for their big heartfelt the bromance yes exactly but then they got their moment when Argyle drives them away and they get their kiss at the end so so the point being this action movie was not just about you know guns and goals and That's money just what it was about relationships yes and yes, yes and people to kind of go sad for just a moment I think everybody's probably aware that in March of 2022 there was the sad news that Bruce mm-hmm. Willis was retiring from acting due to receiving a diagnosis that he has aphasia which mm-hmm. is a condition that can make it very difficult for a person to communicate and then since that time he's actually also been diagnosed with frontal temporal dementia Mm -hmm. but I loved that 
he will be forever immortalized in one of the most beloved movies of all time because I found that just this past July, Variety had this article. It was called the 50 best action movies of all time and they were ranking them in order. Die Hard came in second. Here is what they said as their rationale behind Die Hard ranking second. Mm -hmm. Bruce Willis bleeds in the course of trying to rescue his wife from Hans Gruber and a gang posing as deranged German terrorists who've seized her Los Angeles office tower during a Christmas party. Seeing Willis crawling through glass covered in cuts makes all the difference in distinguishing his character off-duty NYPD detective John McClane from so many steroid swollen 80s action heroes. He wasn't an invincible killing machine so much as an ordinary man in way over his head and they have a parenthetical expression that says audiences loved him in the role which redefined the comedic moonlighting star as a tough guy Mm -hmm. and the label stuck until his recent retirement by pitting such a relatable protagonist against Rickman's snarling all-time great screen villain Die Hard found a recipe for infinite rewatchability one whose holiday backdrop has made it an irreverent annual tradition for super fans who can't get enough of Willis's yippee kaye antics, whether it's crawling through air ducts or dropping baddies from upper stories. Mm-hmm. And you know what is also great is Hans Gruber isn't just a mustache twirling villain because when Holly comes in and asks for a couch for the pregnant woman, he's not cruel about it. He says, well, we'll have a couch brought in. Is that okay? And when Carl is so upset, he's like, you've got to stay calm. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's even a flawed, a compassionate villain, if you could say it that way. You know, he just wants to rob the place. He's not so, a terrorist. He just wants to rob and get some money. Well, I think what you're saying, too, is we don't have two-dimensional characters. Yes. These are actually yes. developed yeah. characters. Yeah. Armchair psychologist. Well, all this brings us to our armchair segment, Ashley, which I feel like we've kind of started already. <laughs> what I thought we might do is both of us chime in on the pro and the con for the argument and then state our, our sides, mm-hmm. like where we stand. Mm-hmm. But if you'd rather do it a different way, we can. Well, what I can give you is my notes from the two videos that I watched, because I think they lay out the argument in a more eloquent way than I could. All right, go ahead and give us your notes then. Okay, so from the Fandom Entertainment YouTube, and let me quote it again, if you missed it the first time, Fandom Entertainment by the numbers, science proves Die Hard is a Christmas movie. So here's what they did. They said that there are five quotas of data. You have Christmas trees, Christmas decor, Christmas carols, use of the word Christmas, and other Christmas references. There are 11 unique Christmas trees, 19 shots with a Christmas tree, 15 unique Christmas decorations or references, 7 Christmas carols, 12 if you count O to Joy, 14 uses of the word Christmas, and 4 other Christmas references. But do we watch it at Christmas? Phantom's page hits an increase by 400% November through December, with the highest being Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, as far as it being watched. What's a negative? It's not really a family movie. You're not going to watch it with your (laughs) 10-year-old, because there are 20 murders, 10 smoked cigarettes, a use of an illicit drug, and 26 instances of the use of the F word. So, not something you use or or watch with, like, hey kids, let's watch this (laughs) while we wait for Santa. Now, there is the Christmas spirit, which is goodwill, generosity, and altruism, which I said earlier the goodwill mm-hmm. was he helped the police brought brought his kids gifts and was on the roof trying to save the civilians i don't remember if this i think this was also from fandom it reunites a family that was broken mm-hmm. the christmas party was essential to the plot for the small number of hostages because mm-hmm. they wanted a small number mm-hmm. and so if it had happened on any other day than christmas this wouldn't have existed because it would have been full of people now on howard ho's video how Die Hard uses beethoven for hans and why it's amazing i don't have any written notes from that because i was watching it this morning and i watched it twice before you got here. I <laughs> highly recommend this video. He goes into such beautiful depths of the music used in this. You know, I was like, oh, there's Ode to Joy. Cool. Singing in the Rain is used in this film. They talk about Reginald Vell Johnson's character, or he talks about, not they, it's his film, his uh, documentary. They talk about Reginald Vell Johnson's character being the portrayal of what Bruce Willis wants to be, which is a good family man. So he is, and then Reginald Vell Johnson wants to be what Bruce Willis is, which is a good cop. Mm. So they 
they're the foil and the way that they come together at the end. And like Reginald is the good angel on John's shoulder where Argyle, who's like, hey, if it doesn't work out with your wife, I can help you out. He's like the bad angel on his <laughs> shoulder. And that Reginald's song that he sings, that's his theme is Let It Snow. He's, he's singing it out loud. And at the end of it, the song that they use to end it is Let It Snow because now John has achieved what Reginald had in the very top. Like this, it blew, it absolutely mm. blew my mind about how they did and the ode to joy the way they interweave it in the film like they start with the one movement and they as the film progresses they do different parts of the ode to joy beethoven's ninth symphony they mm-hmm. use the whole thing and like the big moment when they re- when they show the vault it's like the big movement and mm-hmm. the singing and all that stuff and even when the terrorists the fake terrorists are coming out they use the turkish version because like hans is supposed to be this foreigner and it, it, i'm not i'm gonna get it all completely wrong <laughs> it just it riled me up in the coolest possible way like I was like this guy I gotta subscribe to his channel I want to watch I'm gonna I'm gonna add a show note but the thing was he wanted to be a good husband a good father he overcomes his own inner turmoil through the help of Al his foil and he becomes a good father which is a Christmas theme like reparation of the family okay well it sounds like that show that one in particular had a lot of really cool oh, analysis. It was amazing yeah. I, I've mixed since we've been talking for like over an hour I've, I've forgotten some of it but I highly recommend this film it was fascinating fun well I think you've hit all of my pros I had mentioned a lot of the things like the soundtrack and and the setting we've already talked about Holly's name the specific Christmas references like now I have a machine gun yes. ho 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 yes. and the Santa cap on his head yeah so or there was a phrase it's Christmas Theo it's the time for miracles yes it's Christmas yeah Theo. so there were lots of references I think you've hit everything I had written just a little side note was one of the sources commented that when they play Ode to Joy it was interesting that that's one of the few times this author could recall where they use such a joyous Christmas song and that idea of Merry Christmas for when the villain when the mm-hmm. when the bad guys mm-hmm. have achieved a goal versus mm-hmm. when a protagonist has which is interesting well it also goes into to what you said the director they had interviews he had clips of the interview with the director and he wanted to put in those moments of joy but he also wanted to do it I forget the composer's name again I didn't take notes but go and listen to it and the composer had these ideas to use these songs and he wanted to use uh, I believe it was Ode to Joy and also the singing in the rain because it was used as a moment of joy in uh, Mm. A a Clockwork Orange oh okay and so he wanted to get and singing in the rain is used where Clarence Gilliard is singing that out loud so this guy's like it's the closest thing to an action movie musical we have because Hans Gruber sings at, okay this was one thing I remember now at the moment where the vocal uh, choir comes in to sing Ode to Joy is when Hans starts to sing in the film like we've gone through each of the movements of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and when the choir comes in is when Hans sings so he's like technically Reginald Val Johnson sang his own theme song the guy at the keyboard sang his Sing in the Rain and then Hans sang sung his theme song like these guys just sang their own it's theme song. It's interesting that there's so know, much it's music. So good. Yeah use of the music well did you have any cons that you wanted to share just that you can't watch it with your family okay (laughs) okay so you've already mentioned it was released in july a thing that several sources mentioned was christmas just being a setting not Mm -hmm. actually factoring into the storyline or plot line at all and then you've already mentioned this one how many other christmas movies contain graphic violence and bad language right that wouldn't necessarily fit our our definition of a traditional christmas or holiday although i don't know the grinch was stealing an awful lot <laughs> he was kind of bad. Now, in terms of the cast members, Bruce Willis famously said in no, 2018 no. that it was a no. Mm-hmm. In 2020, Reggie and Bonnie both talked to Entertainment Weekly, and they both said, I'll just paraphrase, that they basically never saw it as a Christmas movie while they were filming it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Reggie said the main theme was not Christmas. It was getting John McClane out of a bad situation. Now, both performers, though, have later said that their perception of the movie has changed over time because of their fans and how many Mm -hmm. of the people like it as a Christmas movie. In fact, Reggie said, personally, I don't think it is. But if people see that, then Mm -hmm. let them see it. Whatever made the film a hit, I'm happy for it. (laughs) Yeah, I bet he is. Yes. And John McTiernan said similar things. He said it's not for us to say it's for the people it's for the audience to say if the audience decides they want it to make it a christmas movie it's a christmas movie it turns out that way now jeb stewart the first writer 
he said, yes, he thinks it is a Christmas movie. His quote was, I'm out in LA now and I can remember writing it years and years ago at Christmas and coming from the East Coast, I felt a little bit of, what am I doing in Los Angeles for Christmas? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that wrapped up in the script. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's what I had listed for some of the, the cons that I was able to find. I think we know where you stand, but what? let's go do, ahead. Do and... you really? I'm not sure I've made myself clear. <laughs> but let's go ahead. Go ahead yes. and, and just give your concise little summary of why you think it's a Christmas movie. I just think it's, I think it is a Christmas movie because yes, it happens at Christmas. Correct. All of these bad things happen at Christmas, but at the heart, it is about John and reuniting with his family. But it's, it's also a little bit in the, the B plot about, Al becoming like who he's meant to be and about to be a father and he just like they become with each other's help they become who they were meant to be and again you could say like wonderful life George Bailey he has all these ideals at the beginning and the part that we considered the Christmas part doesn't happen until well into the film like I remember watching that and going oh I thought this was a Christmas movie but it's it's mostly George growing up and the part we think about is at Christmas and we think of it as a Christmas movie he has to go through this change and become a better man and it's about family and I don't know now I've now I've run out of words <laughs> I've said all my words okay I started out as a hard no mm-hmm. and I think that's because I mentioned that I had not seen the movie mm-hmm. in years and years and years I didn't remember it even occurred at Christmas ah. in my mind it was just a great action movie yeah a very popular beloved action movie yeah. I 100% did not associate it with Christmas at all now in doing the research I realized I really enjoy how the setting of Christmas helps the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think I now land more where Reggie and Bonnie Bedelia were. I, I'm not a hard no anymore. Mm-hmm. I still don't think it was intended as a Christmas movie. I think mm-hmm. it was intended as an amazing action movie with incredible heart. But I like how the setting adds to it. Yeah. And then I wonder why they put all the Christmas stuff in it. Why not make it a 4th of July movie? And it's a 4th of July picnic kind of thing at the, you know, it's just a little employee reward thing. But couldn't you have had the exact same movie if the the party was taking place because their corporation had just achieved a great goal or they were celebrating their 20th anniversary? Like the main thing was you had to get them all together. Yeah, you had to get them all together. But I don't know that John would have showed up for that. He shows up because it's the holidays. That's what's making him come across. He's coming with the gift for the kids. She wants him to stay with her. She wants, she kind of wants to reconcile with him, but he's not going to show up just, just if it's a regular kind of, it had to be Christmas in my thinking. And I'm, I'm not arguing with yeah, you, yeah. but I, I think there could be other reasons why John could have to show up. You yeah. know, I mean, like, I think mm-hmm. you could come up with some other reason why that would be believable why he would come. But again, I totally respect the people who call it a Christmas movie. I am 100% fine with that. I think that maybe it's kind of turned more into that than mm. it would like the, just the Through fact interpretation that, right yes even the fact that people never even debated it until 2007 I thought was interesting because that was it came out in 1988 yeah and it was 2007 before people before we thought to ask the question right because so. it was obvious candy so we didn't need to ask the question <laughs> gosh <laughs> On this note, knowing that this is a topic that is hotly debated, we thought we would get your opinion. So what we're going to do is put a little survey, just a simple yes, no, on our Facebook page. Mm -hmm. And we invite all of our fans to weigh in and we'll see. We'll see what you guys think. Sounds good to me. I have high hopes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So who are we going to cheers? I think we cheers Bruce. Absolutely. We, We wanted to do this episode and celebrate him and celebrate this amazing film and this, you know, I'm going to say this beautiful Christmas film, but you know, <laughs> we want to just celebrate him and thanks for everything he's done and what an amazing career he's had. What an amazing career and and look at the impact he has had yeah. on action Cinema. movies and action stars yeah. forever. There's some people that never got an Oscar because I think they just made it look so easy that you didn't realize how much talent they have and mm-hmm. I think I don't think he's ever won an Academy Award, but he would fall into that. Like Cary Grant never got one. Uh, mm-hmm. John Wayne just ended up with a lifetime achievement. They just make it look so easy that you don't realize the scope and breadth of their talent and he falls in that camp yeah and yet we know how incredibly difficult this role was we just talked about some of the challenges he faced a huge 
huge shout out to you, Mr. Bruce Willis. And I guess we also need to say to our listeners, a very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, because we are going to take a little time off to be with our families. We're going to be dark next week, but we will see you in the new year. And we've already got a pretty excellent plan. We're coming in strong. That's right. Enjoy your time and we will see you next year. See you in 2024. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can Join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandalwater theme and other music, Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the hosts during each episode of Scandalwater are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.